Hello, and welcome to Talking Solutions. This is the eighth podcast from the Association for Solution-Focused Hypnotherapy. I'm Sally Hare. And I'm Trevor Eddles, and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. Today, we're really pleased to have Phil Harris with us. Uh, Welcome, Phil. I do have a well-thumbed copy of your book, so thank you for joining us today. (laughs) Thank you. Replacement uh, copies are available. <laughs> I, I, I also have a well-thumbed copy of your book. So. so Phil Harris is based in Bristol and has been working in the area of complex needs since the 1990s, working in community services with young people and those with complex needs, developing services, directing projects, training and writing books and blogs on the subject. In 2000, he established Freespace, an independent company seeking to close the gap between research, training and practice in order to improve outcomes for vulnerable people. This has placed Phil at the forefront of innovation in treatment designs that have set new standards in outcomes across substance misuse, family, young people, and mental health services. Besides training and consultancy, Phil still delivers services to clients and remains involved in multiple voluntary and housing sector agencies. He utilizes a solution-focused approach in his work His book on helping people with drug and alcohol problems, Empathy for the Devil, is on many solution-focused hypnotherapy course reading lists, and he delivers the popular Addiction, Dependency and Change professional development course for the Clifton Practice, which I think we've both attended. We We did, yes. (laughs) Mine was probably longer ago than yours. (laughs) I found what you had to say about the stages of recovery fascinating. Um, the background factors that contribute to dependency in the cycle of contemplating quitting, taking action, maintaining a dependency-free state, and sometimes relapsing. So how does that inform your work with individuals? I think there are many paths to change. There's many routes which which people change. But um, as practitioners, I think often what we get tasked with is kind of trying to work with what might be termed intentional change. This is where people are making very kind of conscious and deliberate effort in in order to amend the behavior or life situation in some way. You know, there are other routes that you know change does occur. Um, Jasco Di Clemente's work on stages of change really kind of came from thinking about smoking cessation programs, which was kind of asking a slightly different question. Rather than thinking, you know, how do we change smokers? They, they asked a different question, which was, you know, how do smokers actually change? And so then they kind of followed a population of smokers over a long period of time. And, and what, what they kind of found was that smokers kind of held these different positions. So some smokers, quite happy smoking, not considering change, were pre contemplative. Others were smoking, but thinking about change. Others were reading Alan Carr, give up the easy way, preparing for change. One irritable, snappy group said, I've just stopped, stopped with the questions already. <laughs> they turned it into action. One group said, gave up first time, me, maintained themselves as non-smokers. And then, you know, people have setbacks and had kind of relapsed. And so originally they kind of saw it as a cycle. Now, subsequent research shows that kind of people could hop around a little bit. So they could kind of move towards preparation for change very quickly or back away a little bit. So we tend to think of it as stages of change these days. Now, the, the lesson I extract from Prochaska and T. Clemente's work, they, they don't really kind of make this as visible as, as, as I do, is they kind of always remind me of a, a kind of really fundamental position we need to hold as practitioners. And the fundamental position is you'll never work with smoking cessation, you'll never work with trauma, depression, anxiety, drugs or alcohol, 
you'll never work with any of those things. All we get to work with as practitioners, and the only thing we get to work with, is the client's attitude to their problem. I think often we get stuck as practitioners when we think we're solving clients' problems, because that kind of begets this idea that the client is making progress to the resolution of a problem. Uh, and when clients don't do that, we can get a little bit stuck. But what Prochaska and Di Clemente really tell us is that the client always holds a position towards the problem. Fundamentally, I think the most important question we all ask as practitioners should be, what is the client's relationship to the problem? Because that's all we have. You know, we can't solve the client's problems. We work with the attitude towards the problem. So whether clients make progress or not, there will always be a position to work with. Now, every life is unique. You know, every life is the product of a whole kind of constellation of unique events. So Prochaska and Clemente are really kind of given us a bit of a broad heads up. You know, there's only so many broad positions towards change somebody can hold. But then it's kind of developing insight and recognition of what that means for the individual clients sat before us. Uh, I do a lot of work with clients who previous treatment attempts have failed them. Uh, and I, I think one of, the, one of the most common problems where treatment has failed for people is that the, the previous practitioners didn't ask the question, what is the client's relationship to the problem? Because when we don't ask that question, what we're very inclined to do is to do the right intervention for a client, but to deliver it at the wrong time. It's very easy for us to get ahead of a client. It's very easy, as, you know, and, and, and you want practitioners to have that kind of heart. But sometimes we hope for more than the client hopes for at the point when we meet them. And when that happens, we're a poor fit between what we're doing and the client's attitudinal position. Um, when that happens, clients tend not to simply move forward, they tend to move backwards. So for me, I think as a practitioner, Francesca and Di Clemente just constantly reminded me to ask that question. What is the client's relationship to the problem? I was working, I was doing a lot of kind of counselling kind of during lockdown. And um, I remember somebody saying to me, look, 57 Phil, I'm never going to get married, I'm never going to get a job, there's nothing for me. And I'm not going to be able to find somebody to marry him. I'm not going to be able to get him the dream job. But fundamentally, I'm working with his, his attitude to his life situation, first and foremost. And so it kind of grounds us and keeps us very focused on, you know, the heart of the presenting issue for this individual kind of before us. Uh, at kind of kind of a treatment structural level, what we can kind of see is around about 50% of clients enter into seeking professional help in low states of motivation. But if people present to a drug and alcohol agency, mental health service, they're going to have an assessment and a support plan. That's okay, your kind of entry requirement. But that's a good fit for people in preparation. It, it kind of assumes that clients have come through the door because they want change, whereas actually many clients come to see us because they have to or because they don't know what it is they do want. Mm. So they're in much kind of lower states of motivation. We tend to neglect this low motivational uh, states and positions when actually it could be the biggest standing population we get to work with by, by motivational level. So when I design services, uh, particularly kind of big treatment systems, you can kind of see what I would tend to do is offer people one to three brief interventions first before they decide anything. That gives people a chance to evaluate what they're seeking, what, 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 what is the nature of the problem, what they'd like to do about it. 
it just doesn't assume that people kind of want change right from the outset. Uh, and we have seen some fascinating uh, results from that. Um, when we introduced this to a family service and families in quite complex situations, uh, I have about 150 new referrals, 120 families said they got what they needed in those three sessions. They didn't need to move on to, mm. to more complex intervention. Um, some research suggests that, you know, practitioners, we overestimate Malan's research, suggests often practitioners overestimate treatment by like, three times the amount that clients do. So sometimes there's a big gap between, you know, what can be achieved in fairly brief periods of time uh, with the expectations of the practitioners, which can be you know, seeing things on a much longer term scale. So often our design treatment systems, um, with that in mind, I think we're working with a large population of clients with different needs and how does the treatment system need to account for these varying degrees of motivation? So it's a little bit more of a systemic view of it, but tends to underpin most of the work I do. That's great. And that, that sort of person-centred approach, you know, sits very well with the kind of solution-focused approach that we use. You know, how do you think that's helped you in your client and research work around addiction and dependency, would you say? I think it kind of underpins everything. You know, I designed some very big multi-county treatment systems or some, you know, very bespoke tailored programmes. Um, but but my kind of question is, is we'll start with what does recovery look like for this population? Mm. Uh, and I'm always inclined to look primarily at the natural remission research. So this is individuals with these problems who change without professional help. Uh, and often that, that those, those patient groups are kind of ignored, but they are actually the vast majority of clients. So we don't really send that message out that the vast majority of people change without professional help. Um, if you ask a treatment seeker about their treatment, they then tend to tell you about the treatment philosophy they've experienced. Whereas when you look at the, the natural remission research where people change without professional help, you kind of see the raw resourcefulness mm. of the clients and, the, and their journey. And so then how do we kind of bring interventions to be much closer to the, the raw resourcefulness of the clients coming into services rather than imposing theoretical frameworks on them? I'll give you a really good example of this. You know, there's lots of strategies you can do to kind of look at how to reduce cravings. But when I was looking at the natural remission research on cravings, what, what kind of struck me is, is two things. A, the kind of clients had different explanations of cravings. So some people would say, well, it's because I'm dehydrated, so I drank water. Other people say, I've got low sugar levels. So if I had kind of cravings, I would, I would have a sweet. People say it's a vitamin deficiency. I'd have a vitamin tablet. So they all had these their own personal explanations, and it kind of begetted an antidote for them. So they, they, they had a concept of what it was, and they also had an antidote. And so when I'm working around cravings these days, I'm less inclined to give people you know, a set way of dealing with cravings. But I'll say, what do you think your cravings are about? What causes them? And so what's the remedy to that? Because ultimately, it's their belief and their capacity to control it, which is the remedy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you can kind of see that's very anchored in in the kind of raw experience of people. You know, so large populations that there's lots of people doing this, but they, you see these very similar patterns. It's a kind of much more naturalistic kind of approach. So I find some some models are very theoretical and um, a bit disconnected from the kind of raw experiences of clients, really. So the kind of starting position is always the resourcefulness of the client, and particularly if you're anchored into the natural remission studies. And, and if nothing else, it reminds you as a practitioner that the vast majority of people have 
both the capacity and ability for, for change, really, something which is easy to forget when working with complex cases. Right. And I think sort of moving on from that, my next question is, how do you think having support outside your usual networks, you know, for example, a therapist, can help reset unhelpful habits and dependencies? I think it, I think it kind of helps in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I think there's kind of a couple of components to that. I had a very interesting discussion with, with a, a group recently on this kind of subject, and um, it kind of highlights some of the factors which are universal. Somebody was kind of saying that, you know, when people kind of struggle in in, in uh, their community in Slovakia, uh, they go and see the, the little old lady on the edge of the village. And then somebody was saying, well, you know, for, the, for their class, they go back to Somalia and they talk to an Iman. We're much more likely to to you know, place our trust in mental health professionals these days, higher professionals. And all of this would, would have significant power because what they do is they create a sacred space. They create a protective space away from your life and a kind of safe space to be you, to, to think out loud. So we know that some of those kind of pure relational factors are, are vital to outcome. If anything, they count for more than type of therapeutic model that people use. I'm very interested in language and neuroscience. And I think there's a very strong connection between those two things. Certainly when we kind of look at kind of uh, when people are kind of carrying distress and in high emotional states, we kind of know from research that the emotional systems are kind of hijacking rational systems. But what we also know from research is that empathy, emotional recognition, uh, naming of emotion uh, switches those emotional systems off. So in some studies, we strap up people's brains in high emotional states, get them to name objects, nothing happens, get them to name people, nothing happens, get them to name places, nothing happens, get them to name emotion, you can see their amygdala switch off in real time. Mm. So there's the sacred space. Then there's the, the kind of common process of, of language exchange. My hunch is that spoken emotion becomes a processed emotion. Uh, I certainly see that a lot, particularly when working with people who've experienced trauma or un, uh, unresolved grief, for example. What I notice in the language of clients there is they tend to avoid emotional words. They tend to use proxies. Uh, and then they don't kind of really process the emotion. Um, so my kind of hunch around that is that essentially they're suffering. Uh, and what I mean by suffering is sir, meaning below, and ferry, meaning to carry. So I don't do any real kind of historical biographical work with clients. I don't take them back in space and time. But it's really kind of exploring what do they carry below right now emotionally? and how you kind of help them process that through the kind of language and conversations that that, that we have. Um, because whilst people carry high emotion, it's very hard for them to, to, to think. What we kind of then have is, we, we know from kind of research that the common factors are, you know, are, are most important in terms of driving outcome. Uh, and so it's the kind of goodness to fit between um, the client's perspective and, and what the practitioner is doing. You know, you, you, you could, ex you know, you could have the highest level of qualifications in any therapeutic model, but if that model or way of seeing doesn't connect to the client's experience, you, you're simply not going to get an outcome. 
And so I think that different therapy models are kind of like different stories of human nature. Um, they kind of give the history of the problem and and, and what the remedy is. Uh, so psychodynamic therapy is looking at patterns from your childhood, how they repeat today, and CBT models um, is you're unrehearsed in behaving differently in the world. So we're going to teach you some skills to how to do that differently. And I think what those kind of frameworks really do is they provide clients with, with a metaphor or an organizing principle. They kind of help illuminate kind of dark corners. They, they, they bring something into the light. And so where those metaphors speak of the client experience, then you're going to get an outcome. Um, kind of first and foremost. So models or methodologies provide a framework, if you like, for, for that process. Um, Solution-focused therapy, I think, is one of the very few models that capitalizes on that. You know, the client's worldview is everything in solution-focused work, becoming into the client's worldview, um, using the client's metaphors, the motifs, um, working with the material that they bring is, is hard on the practitioner because you can't rehearse that. But actually kind of brings you much kind of closer to each unique client's kind of personal experience, really. Um, and so I think the kind of implicit flexibility in solution-focused therapy you know, is that kind of Goulashan's idea of, you know, working from a position of not knowing anything about your client means that you have to enter into their world and into their kind of meaning-making systems um, more than kind of prescriptive models do, really. Um, so we know you're kind of five to eight times better off seeking professional help than not. I think sometimes one of the issues in seeking a talking cure is, isn't that, you know, it doesn't work. It's just the variability in them. So we do see large variations in outcomes between therapists. So, you know, in general, therapists at their worst are, are as good as an antidepressant at their best. You know, it's a very similar effect size. Whereas therapists at their best, you know, they're like antibiotics in terms of the effectiveness of outcomes. So sometimes the challenge is, is just the variability. But certainly we know, you know, therapists at their worst tend to be the um, same as antidepressants. Um, there's been a lot of interesting research about what makes what makes a super shrink, as they're called, what makes a master therapist. Uh, and there's some really interesting stuff in there. Um, two, two, two key ideas, I think. I've got to be careful how I pronounce this phrase. Um, firstly, <laughs> highly expert uh, therapists are theoretically promiscuous. Okay. Uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, they they can see they can see through different lenses. Mm. Um, sometimes I think that the least effective practitioners are those practitioners who become a bit ideologically possessed about one way of working. They're inflexible. Uh, so super shrinks are theoretically promiscuous. They can see the client's worldview through through different lenses. And if you kind of think you've got two practitioners, one believes you know, they have the universal answer to everything, one is theoretically promiscuous. When they come across a case which is that they're struggling with, if you're very rigid in your practice, you've got nowhere to go. If, every, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. Whereas what that gives... Uh, super shrinks is the ability or greater th therapeutic imagination to, to kind of call upon. The second thing, uh, and this is a big part of solution-focused work, is effective practitioners seek routine feedback. You know, it kind of anchors into the solution-focused therapy principle of clients are always collaborating. They're always telling us when we get it right and when we get it wrong. And as a result, I think that you know, one of the big differences Super shrinks is that they're very sensitive to that feedback from the client. 
uh, and will adjust accordingly. Um, and we see something very similar in medicine. So some GPs are 10 times better at making diagnosis than others. And the only big difference between them is uh, more effective GPs, once they make a referral to a consultant, is they follow up with the consultant and the consultant gives them feedback and closes that loop. So that ability to learn from one's clients, I think, at an individual level and kind of collectively, and to be in a constant state of learning, which is what feedback loops kind of really give us, uh, I think could become become really important in developing this too. And so I think some of those core principles and solution-focused work, you know, underpin some of the wider research base in terms of, you know, what makes us effective, what, what, what makes us matter to um, the class that we work with, really. Thank you. That's a really, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. And thank, thank you for that. And I suppose the, the, the obvious question to ask next is if, if somebody's listening and they feel they've got an unhealthy relationship with drugs or alcohol or anything else for that matter, you know, what first steps would you advise they, they take? I think in general with drug and alcohol, there's a lot of confusion about the nature of drug and alcohol problems. And it's going to go quite, kind of quite wide. And, you know, drug and alcohol problems kind of occur, occur on two, two levels and they can be quite separate. The first off is what I would think of as addiction. Uh, and addiction is where drugs or alcohol are beginning to erode people's capacity to sustain relationships and responsibilities. You know, is, is your consumption damaging relationships with partners, with children, your workplace? Is it curtailing your life in, in, in some way? Is it diminishing it? That's kind of really a kind of social perspective, you know, it's, it's the way it kind of influences the individual's ability to manage social relationships and responsibilities. And so I would really define addiction as really the global erosion of relationships. Are relationships breaking down around consumption? So that's kind of one thing. The other thing is about kind of physical dependence. You know, physical dependence is just how your brain is going to adjust to the presence of a drug. You know, if you're taking a depressant drug, it's slowing everything down, and your brain will work harder to compensate for that. The drug will wear off, and then you're going to experience withdrawal. Often, I think, in everyday life, people confuse those two concepts. So... Somebody who's you know sweating through the night, having bad nightmares, waking up early, a few liveners before work, stops off in the pub at lunchtime, a few drinks on the way home. Because they're holding down relationships, they might not feel they have a problem, even though they're showing signs of physical dependency. Uh, but likewise, a binge drinker, you know, a binge drinker can go weeks without drink. Uh, they won't feel any physical consequences on that. But you know, if they go on a three-day bender, that's going to affect the relationships around them. So. I think that there would be kind of two things. You know, it is the substance diminishing your relationships in, in, in any shape or form. Is it that you're feeling some kind of level of discomfort when it's not available to you? George de Leon was uh, a researcher. I talked about Prochaska and de Comente's work earlier when they were following smokers over time. Uh, George de Leon did a very similar thing following drinkers and drug users over time. Uh, tried to replicate Prochaska and Clemente's research, but with drinkers and drug users. Um, and they kind of, George de Leon found a hidden stage in the stages of change. And it was in between pre-contemplation and contemplation. And the hidden stage was that people began to recognize they were having problems, but they tended to attribute the problems to other people. So where kind of people feel that they are struggling with drug or alcohol, or certainly locking in conflict with others around drug and alcohol, that's usually those kind of first signs that, that, that something is, is awry. Certainly where there's kind of signs of physical dependency, you know, people should kind of, 
it is it's very dangerous to stop drinking or uh, taking benzodiazepines abruptly, you know, they should seek uh, help from a GP. In terms of affecting one's life, I would say put to the test. Give yourself a break. Give yourself a two-week break. What's that two-week break like? Is it a struggle? What moments in those two-week periods are it difficult? May give you some insight whether alcohol in particular is playing a too big a role in your life. But it may also kind of give you a heads up where the difficulties arise about its functions. Is it when you're alone? Is it when you're with certain people? Is it on weekends? Is it payday? And people work in hospitality? Is it days off? So those struggles may kind of give you a kind of heads up or insight into how important it is, but also what may be driving the behavior in its early stages. Yeah, that's really interesting. Talking about free space then, which uh, Sally mentioned earlier, what, what's in the pipeline for free space? What have you got planned at the moment? Uh, well, there's a lot planned. <laughs> um, it's been a very, it's a very busy time for some reason, uh, in terms of kind of delivering kind of training and courses, I think I'm pretty much booked up every day now for the next 15 months. So it does feel weird. Wow. It does feel weird to have my life mapped out so much. I was kind of consider myself a free spirit, just a free space. <laughs> then there's there's a number of kind of projects. One thing I'm kind of looking forward to is a big project uh, with an NHS trust in the summer, which will be looking at reducing re hospital readmission rates for, for people diagnosed with schizophrenia, with dual diagnosis issues. So I'll be kind of developing a program and training program for staff teams around that. Some very exciting stuff in terms of the design of young people services uh, and doing some of the kind of follow-up research. So last summer, uh, I was kind of researching a large data set about the impact of COVID on young people with drug and alcohol and mental health problems. Uh, and that research was really fascinating. It kind of created a really stark picture. But in terms of research, you're kind of looking at the overall trend. So is that is that a blip and has that changed? So this summer, I'll be kind of doing the post-COVID period to see what the impacts and adjustments were for, for young people with drug and alcohol mental health problems. So I'm kind of really looking forward to that kind of research study. Um, some of the research suggests that COVID changed people's personality more in two years than typically happens in 10 so there's going to be some very interesting findings about you know, uh, during and post uh, kind of cohort groups. Um, so that research study I'm really excited about. Um, and then I'm kind of thinking about maybe kind of doing some more online learning stuff, maybe kind of freestanding learning platforms. I looked at it before, but I didn't, didn't really think the technology was there. Um, but in the age of AI, where I can get it to do all the programming. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of made me think well, maybe something would be there for uh, a, a much more kind of interactive uh, form of kind of platform learning, uh, which before I just think it kind of lacked a kind of human touch and feel, really. So uh, my thoughts are also looking that direction. So spend my time thinking about that stuff. Can I do it? Is it really there? I don't really think which ends the world, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole can of worms, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think the the work the, the the work on COVID is you know you you're at the forefront of something that's going to be absolutely massive. Yeah, you know, how how it's changed us all, kind of. I think it's it's, it's it is um, yeah, it is astonishing. I think mm -hmm. uh, the the impacts, and and I think it kind of goes to the heart of you know what makes us us um, to mm -hmm. to a degree. I think. Um, 
that is very very kind of striking across the board uh particularly for kind of more um depression and anxieties it was interesting in the studies the last range of studies COVID lockdowns didn't really impact on young people so much with poor and post-control conditions. Right. Like ADHD and, you know, oppositional defiance disorder, there's kind of poor and post-control. There's a lot of overlap between those things. Um, but it did have huge amount of impact on depression and anxiety rates. Um, so depression and anxiety seems very environment, environmentally sensitive. Um, so it's kind of looking to see what the long-term effects of that were and, and the impacts of treatment. Uh, during that time really absolutely fascinating well it's been it's been brilliant talking to you phil and thank you for finding time to come and join us that's about it for this podcast yeah uh, next time we're looking forward to talking to sophie fletcher a hypnotherapist specializing in the use of hypnotherapy and mindfulness for menopause and other women's health in general so it's goodbye from our guest phil harris thank you and for me sally Hare. And it's goodbye from me, Trevor Eddles. Bye. Bye. <laughs>